0: Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. All right, if you have a Bible, we are in Revelation chapter 2 this morning. Revelation chapter 2. And I tell you what, the illustration that we just saw right before us here feeding into what we're about to go into scripture about is is canning it's interesting that that would happen on this day because we're talking about a church who gets wrapped up in the world and how that is obviously happening today in this culture and so how important it is for us to to guard the church the practices that happen within our midst because these young ones are growing up and guess what They're going to one day take over the mantle from us. We want to leave them something that's godly. A heritage that will point them to Jesus Christ. Amen. So Revelation chapter 2, if you'll stand with me. We're going to begin in verse 12. We've already considered the letter to the church at Ephesus and the church of Smyrna. This morning, the church at Pergamum. Verse 12, we read, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Lord, we thank you for your word. This morning we ask you to speak into our lives, Lord. We pray that you would just come by your spirit, Lord. Invade the the dark places of our hearts, Lord. Just illuminate and bring a conviction to our hearts, encouragement, Lord. Whatever we need, we pray that you would meet us here even now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The title of my message this morning is Worldly Adoption in a Godly Culture. Worldly Adoption in a Godly Culture. You know, we talk about adoption in the sense of, you know, taking, you know, trying to take a cause or a practice or, or something or, and, and, and adopt it into a, a group of people, right? And so if you're at a workplace and you're trying to get adoption on a policy or something like that, you know, you, you, you bring it forward and you, and you try and get people on your side. That's what you're doing. That's what adoption means. You get the buy-in from somebody, right? Well, th- that works great when it's for the right purposes, but that works horribly when it's used for the wrong purposes. And in this case, today, the context of our text is that the world, it, the, the church is adopting practices from the world. Now, where have you ever seen that before? I mean, you don't see that today, do you? Of course you do. It exists in our culture today. This is, this is the issue in the church of Pergamum. She's married the world. The church in Pergamum is no longer a church that is in the world but not of the world. She's become one with the world by way of adoption. Similar to the church at Corinth. This church in Pergamum has allowed pagan practices to plague the church. You remember the church of Corinth when they were allowing you know, sexual morality to sort of exist in the church. No one was saying anything to anybody about it. They thought, oh, this is the, we're, we're allowing this because we're so loving. Look how loving we are. And yet, Paul comes in there and goes, dude, this is a train wreck. What are you guys doing? You know, and he starts to, to instruct them on not allowing the culture to infiltrate into the church. Well, that's what's happening in Pergamum. Jesus is writing the same sort of letter um, to, to, that Paul wrote to the Corinthians uh, to, the, to the church in uh, Pergamum here. And, uh, you know, it's, it's such a danger for the church to be married to the world. You know, there, it is possible to be married to Jesus and also to be married to the world. It is, it is possible to do that. And in fact, Jesus will show us exactly how that works. You know, you don't have to actually be adopting practices from the world to be married to the world. I don't know if you noticed in the text, but there's a transition that happens. When Jesus talks about judgment coming upon the church, he talks about them. Them being the people who have, who have um, you know, ascribed to the, the, the bad teachings, the false teachings of Balaam and Balak and, and also the Nicolaitans. But this letter is to the whole church. And so there's another type of person that Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about somebody who's in the church, who knows what's going on, sees the culture infiltrating into the church and says nothing. That's the other person that Jesus says. He's not going to judge them the same way, but nevertheless, he's addressing that person as well. Maybe you're here today, and and you see the culture infiltrating in on the church, and you're doing nothing about it. You're saying nothing about it. Here's the reality, is we have a responsibility. Every Christian has a responsibility to the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, We have all been handled that mantle. When we signed the dotted line with Jesus Christ and we said, you're my Lord, you signed your allegiance over to him and you said, I will follow you and you alone. I will follow no institution and no man. I will follow Jesus. And that comes with some responsibilities, particularly when it comes to the church. Now, if you're, you know, if you have the sheriff mentality And, you know, you're looking for things. That's the wrong mentality. Because you'll always find things in the church. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about cultural practices that make their way into the church. It's better if I get on my tippy toes when I say that. I don't know why, but it is. So it's better for, you, you, you know, he's talking about people who are adopting the culture. People that are in the church who aren't doing anything about the infiltration of the world inside of the church. And let me tell you something. I don't know. I mean, we, we've said this before, and, and you know, it, you, you would agree with this, that the church in the book of Acts looks very different than the church that we see today. Sadly, even our church. Sadly, even our church. That doesn't mean that we're doing things wrong or anything. Maybe the Spirit's moving differently. That could be. I'm not saying that that's the case. But one thing is for sure. That we have to make sure that the world is not infiltrating the church, changing what we do and how we do it and who it's about. Folks, if you come in here and you think that worship is about you, you've missed the point. If you come in here and go, man, I don't like this song. Why do they have to play this song? Don't they know my favorite song is this one? You have missed the point. Maybe God likes that song. (laughs) Maybe God wants that song sung to him this morning. It's easy for us to make things about ourselves because that's what the world does. We've come out of the world. We know that. We know what it's like to be in the world. We know what it's like to be of the world because we all have been there. We've done that. You bought the t shirt, but guess what? You're no longer there anymore. Jesus called you out of the world he calls you to walk faithful to him and that means we have to guard ourselves against the practices of the world now here's the reality of it is that not only do we have our own temptations within ourselves just our flesh that's drawn to the world because we're still in this entrapped in this fleshly body and we have desires for the world but then we have an adversary we have one who is also, trying to make it incredibly difficult for you and I to be pure and to be, uh, you know, sold out to Jesus Christ. And so what happens with the enemy is he's so good at warfare that he says, oh, I'm, I'm not winning this battle, so here's what I'm going to do. You know, I'll, I'll, he throws all kinds of different things at us, and when they don't work, the thing that he will do the, the, the most subtly is he'll become your friend. And he'll join your the, he'll, he'll join your church, and he'll join your friends, and he'll join those kinds of things, and he'll try to get at you that way. And that's what he's doing in this church. He has joined the church. In fact, Jesus says, this is where his throne is. This is where Satan dwells the most. Folks, I don't know if you've noticed, but there is a high level of satanic influence in our world today. Now, you might, some of you might go, dude, you're crazy. What are you talking about? Listen, if we believe the Bible, do you believe the Bible? Yes. You believe the Bible. Well, the Bible says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, right? What does that mean? That means that every single problem that we have is a spiritual problem. Every single problem that we face is a spiritual. It has some sort of significance in the spiritual realm. It means that there are powers and rulers and, and, and the prince of darkness at work. Behind the scenes, trying to get your attention, trying to woo your, your adoration from God to himself. And here's, here's the reality of this. Do you know that he hates you? Why does Satan hate you? Because you bear the image of God. You are made in his image. He hates that. He hates that. That's why we have a culture that wants to battle identity. Because the devil hates our identity. He hates the fact that we have been been, uh, made in the image of God. So he wants people to, to rebel against who God made them. Because that's the image of God himself. He wants to be God. And he's getting all kinds of worship, folks. He's getting all kinds of worship in our world today. The Lord tells us that when it comes to the church, though, he ought to get no worship. He got to get zero worship. We have to be careful then that we don't allow the world practices that are in the world to infiltrate the church. If this letter were to, were to actually relate to some church history, and, and, it, and it very well could. I'm not saying it doesn't. But if it did, it would relate to the era when Constantine became in the ruler of Rome and, it, and when the Roman Catholic Church was built. Was, was, was birthed. You, you might recall, Constantine married the church to the state, making Christianity the religion of Rome, and, and all kinds of horrible things ensued in the name of Jesus afterwards. Which reminds us that just because something is presented to us in the name of Jesus doesn't mean that it's from Jesus. And it also tells us that we have to be very, very careful about Things that we see and things, you know, we have to be careful because the enemy is at work. And, you know, the the story goes that Constantine saw a a burning cross and and he heard the the voice saying to him, in this sign, conquer. And as a result, it said that he fell to his knees and he became a Christian. Now, many people questioned his salvation. They questioned, "Did, did he really become a believer I can't answer that question. I wasn't there. The Lord knows. But here's what I know. Is that what Constantine did as a result of seeing this image and then, it, you know, deploying this, this, this effort through the whole Roman Empire was not from Jesus. Was not from Jesus. Conversion by the sword. You know, the Lord doesn't make anybody come to Christ. You want to be as rebellious as you want to? Go for it. You'll suffer the consequences, but he doesn't make you come to Christ. And there were many other things that happened as a result of this. It was 13, or 313 AD, Constantine proclaimed the edict of Milan, establishing religious tolerance for Christians in the Roman Empire. You could imagine how relieving that might have been for those who were believers in that time frame, right? Because the Roman Empire had been Persecuting the church majorly. Of course, there were emperors here and there that were kind to uh, Christians, but but many of them pumbled the church, persecuted the church. You know, caused uh, many m- much martyrdom in that empire. So, no doubt, people were relieved. But when that happened, the government began to fund uh, the church and control what was said and how the church was run, and many false practices resulted. It was in 300 A.D. that the false practice of praying for the dead was instituted. You don't pray for the dead because there is one decision in this life, and once this life is over, that decision is made. It's pointless to pray for the dead, pray for the living. In 375 A.D., the false practice of worshiping saints and angels was instituted. Who are we supposed to worship? The Lord and the Lord only. Not saints, not angels. In 394 AD, mass was instituted. In 431 AD, the false practice of worshiping Mary began. And I'm certain that Mary's rolling over in her grave. And I'm going, what are you doing? Don't worship me. I'm a vessel that the Lord used and she deserves honor, but not that honor. Not that kind of honor. In 539 or 593 A.D., the false doctrine of purgatory was instituted, saying that you could pray somebody out of, of that state of hell or whatever, that state of waiting. Listen, again, it's appointed man once to die and then the judgment. There is no second chances, folks. That's why it's so important that if you don't know Jesus, you come to know him right now because you're not guaranteed the next breath. If you're not living for the Lord right now, you need to live for the Lord now because you're not guaranteed the next breath. And so, all these crazy things happen as a result of, you know, Constantine and this vision that he saw, and he married the church to the world. Jesus never called the church to be married to, to the state, I mean. He, he did, he, there's a clear distinction between his kingdom and this kingdom. Do you know that? When Jesus was asked, hey, should we give to Caesar? He said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Distinction, that's that kingdom, but give to God what is God's. That's a separate kingdom. These are two different kingdoms. Jesus didn't come to overtake the current system that's in place. He came to replace it with a new kingdom. He doesn't want anything to do with that kingdom. That kingdom is defiled. The kingdom he's bringing is righteous and holy. And that's the kingdom that we're called to live for. Therefore we're called to be in the world and not of the world. We're called to do things Jesus' way and not the way that our culture does things. Even as odd as that might seem sometimes, right? We want to be different. If the church is married to the state, then how can it have a distinct difference? How can we stand out? We won't. And guess what? We'll we'll, we'll fill the chairs with people who don't know the Lord. And who think they know the Lord, and they'll have a form of godliness, but deny its power. And that's exactly what uh, Paul said was going to happen in the end days: that there would be people, there would be the love of many would grow cold, and that they would worship. They would come to worship. They would lift their hands. They would say scriptures and all these kinds of things that have no relationship with God, no relationship through Jesus Christ. So as we consider this letter that Jesus is penning through the Apostle John here, we want to consider these words and what it means for us here today. Because if it has a historical context, it would have been back in that era of Constantine. But it certainly has a personal application to you and I today. What is our heart allowing? Are we tolerant with things that we shouldn't be tolerant with? No, do we have a biblical worldview or are we just going with the flow? Because I'll tell you, the flow never gets you where you're supposed to go when it comes to God, folks. And if there's always a rub. It's always contrast to the world. And so we need to really judge ourselves this morning. Consider what the Lord would have to say to us and, and ask ourselves, what, what are we allowing in our hearts that's not from the Lord? So Jesus, in, in following the same pattern as as the letters before in in the church of Ephesus. Um, There's a correspondent, then there's a commendation, then there's a correction, a command, and finally, unconditional promise. I don't know if you had noticed this last week, I didn't point it out, but the church of Smyrna had no correction. The Lord didn't have anything bad to say to them, and we'll see that with the church of Philadelphia as well, that the Lord doesn't have anything bad to say about them. But Typically, the other five churches, this is the pattern that the Lord um, speaks to these guys. And so we find, first and foremost, he talks to the correspondent. Uh, verse 12, and to the angel, of the church of Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Again, Jesus is writing to the angel, which could be translated messenger, most probably the pastor of the church, describing himself as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Again, he's Using these imagery from chapter 1, things that he's already said already, things that he's already, and, he, and he's already interpreted for us what they are, but he's using these in direct correlation with what's going on with these churches. So, in this instance, he's using the sharp two-edged sword. And isn't it interesting that one of the issues that Jesus has against this church is that they are, have adopted false teaching, because the two-edged sword represents the word of God. And the word of God is, is really the doctrine that we're to follow. We're not to follow the ways of the world and the things that the world does. Because those things are corrupt. But we're, we're called to follow the word of God from cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation. We don't, by the way, cut out the Old Testament. It has value. I don't know if you read the Old Testament or not, if you're like one of those Christians who's like, yeah, nothing to say to me. Listen, I'll tell you what, you can gain tons. If you, you'll never understand prophecy, number one, if you don't understand the Old Testament. But number two, there was so much value. So much value in the old, old Testament. Jesus quoted the Old Testament over and over and over again. Paul quoted the Old Testament over and over and over again. Don't miss out. Cover to cover. Genesis to Revelation, the Word of God, it's a sharp two edged sword. It speaks right into your life. It tells you exactly what you, want, what you need to hear when you need to hear it. Isn't that interesting? You open up the Word of God and you're reading something in the morning, and you're like, whoa, I really need to hear that, Lord. Thank you. You, you, you open up your devotion in the morning, you read it, and, and sometimes it's like, oh, that's cool. You don't really feel like the Lord, you know, really gave you a huge nugget or anything like that, and you go to work and somebody's going through something, and you go, oh, wait a second, wait a second, I just read that this morning. Here, this is for you. You see how that works? The Word of God, folks, it is relevant. It is now. It's timeless. It can speak into your life right now. Uh, Hebrews 4.12, for the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. We need the Word of God to keep us from adopting worldly practices. You know, what, what, what do we do when, when new things pop up in the church? We open our Bibles and we say, what does the Word of God say about this specific thing? What am I, you know, the emergent church comes up and all of a sudden, the Word of God is not absolute anymore. That's an absolute statement to say that the Word of God is not absolute. <laughs> somebody's absolute in that, right? I guess it's Rob Bell. But here's the thing. The reality of it is, is that the word of God, it's what we need to keep us from sinning. David penned that in Psalm 119.11. He said, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. He didn't say I stored up, you know, just some, some willpower in myself so that I might not sin against you. No, I stored the word of God in my heart. Because the word of God will convict you in the moment. It will draw you out of places you shouldn't be. The word of God, you hide it in your heart that you might not sin against him. The church of Pergamum was failing in this in some ways. They weren't staying true to the word of God. And so Jesus has a few things against them, which we'll see in a second. The other thing that's interesting about this picture that Jesus Paints of the word of God, or the sword that he has there is that in Pergamum, the proconsul there was granted a rare power known as the right of the sword, meaning that he could perform executions. The man had judgment power over this temporary life. And I think what Jesus is saying here is, ho ho, I have all authority and power over this life and the next. He's saying, you want want to consider authority and judgment? Look to me. I'm the judge. I'm the authority. I decide what happens and no one else. And it's a picture of his authority. It's a picture of, of, of Jesus saying that I determine where you spend eternity. And he's also telling the church here that there's judgment also on the way if they don't heed to his response, to to, to his correction here, his warnings to them. Jesus holds the only sword that matters, folks. And his church needs to keep herself pure in practice and focus on what we're called to focus on. That is to share the gospel, the great commission for judgment is coming into the world. There are people departing from this world every day by the thousands or millions, I don't even know what the stats are, but they're big, that don't know the Lord, that are going to hell. And so, you know, we have a responsibility. I don't say that to to, to shame you. I say that to to exhort you to share the gospel. When the Lord calls you to share the gospel, do not stand back. There's a reason. And maybe you're going to be the last person the Lord sends into this person's life before they meet him. So you want to take it serious, but above all, it's the greatest privilege we have, folks, as Christians, to go and tell somebody else about eternity, how their life can be transformed and changed, that they can do a U-turn, all their sins can be washed away, that they can be forgiven. That is a privilege, man, and it's such an awesome thing to be able to share with people. And uh, if we don't know the Word of God, we won't be able to do it correctly, so we need to stick to the Word of God and, and share that with the people even when it comes to hell, folks, people don't want to hear about it, but it's real. It's a real place. And that's why people don't want to hear about it. This is what's going on in the church program here is that, that Jesus is presenting himself as the one with all authority and judgment. And that the word of God is what we need to focus on here. And then he goes on here and he says, but I have a few things to commend you for. In verse 13, I know where you dwell Where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. He keeps saying that, doesn't he? Where Satan dwells, where Satan dwells. By way of background, just so you know, Pergamum was... Located 100 miles north of Ephesus. 15 miles inland from the Aegean Sea. Seated upon a caropolis uh, some 1,000 feet above the plain. It was a sophisticated city. uh, Center of the Greek culture and education. It boasted a 2,000 volume library. That was second only to the famous library in Alexandria, Egypt. In verse 13 it tells us and indicates for us the ethics of this city. This is where Satan's throne is. And why would Jesus say that there? This is where Satan's throne is. Many believe that it relates to the, the temples of the false gods that are worshipped there. In particular, one, uh, one temple that was built to Zeus. Pergamum was supposed, supposedly the birth city of Zeus. And so there was a temple dedicated to worship to him. Some believe it's this temple that Jesus is referring to as Satan's throne. The altar of Zeus was one of the most impressive structures in Pergamum. The altars, uh, stairs, columns, uh, sculptured sides stood 40 feet above the ground. Today, you can actually view this if you'd like to. You can go over to Berlin, Germany, and you can see these stairs that were unearthed and moved over there and given to the Museum of Pergamum there in Berlin. Uh, You can see them there. You can see the... The uh, marble panels depicting the mythical battle between the Greek gods and rebellious giants who were the sons of Mother Earth, they say. So maybe that's why Jesus said this is the throne of Satan. You know, Satan is great at creating things for us to worship because we're worshipers. So what he does is he creates false gods for us to worship. Mythological things and all kinds of symbols and all kinds of weird things anything. Listen, we're like fish in a lure when it comes to gods. We're like, oh, a god, whoa. You know, and you're like, Wonk. you know, you're out of there. You, you, you just got hook lined and sinkered, right? Because we're worshipers. We're worshipers, folks. You're going to worship. The, the question is, what are you going to worship? Who are you going to worship? You're going to worship somebody. It might be your spouse. It might be your children. Those are great things to worship. They're, they're terrible gods terrible gods. You know, those, those gods will not lead you down the right path. There's only one God that will lead us down the right path, and his name is Jesus, and he will lead you to the right place. But we are worshipers, and so the enemy creates all of these gods for us to worship. There was also a temple to Athena there in, in Pergamum, the goddess of wisdom and war. Dionysus, also known as Bacchus, the god of wine and ecstasy. And, and then we have Asclepius, the god of healing who was said to be the chief god in, in uh, Pergamum. The symbol for Asclepius is a serpent on a pole. What does that symbol stand for? Medical, right? Or help or something. So Asclepius was the god of healing, so they had a temple there and Pergamum built to Asclepius, and they, they filled the temple with non-poisonous snakes. And if you wanted to get healed, you would go and live in that temple, you would lay in that temple, you would wait for hopefully one of those snakes to slither over you or touch you in some way, and then you had a possibility of being healed. Does that sound crazy or what? But doesn't that sound satanic? The the great the serpent of old? He's a snake. And he, he, he fills the temple with snakes and people go, oh, I want to do that. You know, I want to be healed. Listen, just pray to the Lord. He'll help you. You don't need to seek satanic help. Because guess what? He's not all powerful. He's powerful, but he's not all powerful. The Lord is greater. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. So this, this, this city of Pergamum was a difficult place to be a Christian, to remain pure, because the, the culture was dictating, you know, just this, the, this huge satanic worship that was going on there of these various gods. And I would say also that we are in the same boat, folks. I wouldn't say it's just hard to be a Christian in Pergamum. It's hard to be a Christian in the United States of America. Why? Because of the satanic influences of our world today. And we're seeing this more blatantly than ever, more blatantly than ever. Listen, there's a, a hundred different examples. We could spend all morning going through different satanic um, attacks that are happening in our culture today, whether it's politically, through, you know, um, Hollywood, through all different kinds of things, through music. But I just picked one industry that I thought was interesting that's fairly revel- recent, and that is the, the shoe industry, now, who in the world would think that there would be satanic influence in the shoes? So we have little Nos who took a Nike shoe. Nike has nothing to do with this, by the way, just so you know, in case you're like, hey, man, did you check in my shoes? <laughs> I ain't got those on. But little Nos literally took some Nike shoes and he had, he had, a, he had them, you know, customized and he, he put all kind of satanic symbolism on it, put that scripture on there, what is it, Mark 10 or something that says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Well, I don't know why you'd put that on there. That sounds like a bad thing to me, but but he's the God of this world, isn't he? And look at look at how evil that looks. But the kids are going after this stuff like crazy. Not only that, but then you have Converse who, you know, look at the satanic symbolisms in this. I mean, to sell shoes? What is this all about? We know what this is all about. This is all satanic stuff. If you don't think that Satan is real and he's at work in this world, folks, you're completely deceived, totally deceived. He is so blatant in our world today, so blatant at, at work and after our kids, even the kids in the church. That, listen, it, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling what's happening. Kids walk around in schools today and they go, or they do something wrong, or, you know, it's just a saying. They go, I'll kill myself. You know, what? Kill myself? Who does that sound like? Sounds like the devil to me. He doesn't want us to live. He hates us. And there's such an incredible satanic influence, not just in Pergamum, but also in the United States of America and all over the world today, Folks. And I tell you that to heighten your awareness to, to, because w- what you need to understand is the things that you're facing in our culture, the things that we're facing in our world today are not um, just flesh and blood issues. These are spiritual issues. There's a spiritual undertone in everything that's happening from politics all the way down to, you know, just the, all kinds of stuff that's going on in our world today, right? I'm telling you, Pay attention. Get in the word of God. I taught on this not too long ago. And because my eyes were kind of open to this, you know, to to more sensitive, I would say, to the things that are going on in the world today. I I noticed that I I was in uh, Lewisburg after church one day. After I taught specifically on just Satan's influences in the world today. And um, there was a, I stopped to get gas at a gas station randomly. And I walk in there and there's... The guy behind the uh, the counter is all blacked out, not emo, but has a pentagram on hanging from his neck, and just just all kinds of different things, symbolisms of satanic things going on. And I was just like, man, the Lord is trying to say something to me about being aware of this stuff because it's so real. And if you have kids, you need to be even more aware. Because the the stuff that's coming through music and the stuff that's coming through the things they watch and all these kinds of things. This is how the world gets into the church, folks. It's through the enemy. Jesus says, man, this church had, had a lot of things against it, but they were unwilling to yield the name of Jesus. They were holding fast in the name of Jesus. They were holding on to it. Retaining to the name. They, they took seas to the name of Jesus. They would not let the name of Jesus go. They were also unwilling to deny their faith. They wouldn't denounce Jesus or turn from him. They would compromise, but not in that way. They would not denounce Jesus or turn from their faith. Even um, when it came to death, and it's illustrated by Antipas here. He was perhaps the bishop there in Pergamum. And according to church tradition, he was roasted to death inside of a, a brass bowl by the hand of Domitian. This church was unfaithful in many ways, but they were being faithful in some ways, holding fast to the name of Jesus. And they were unwilling to give, give it up, even unto death. So despite the commendations that Jesus has for this church, he also has a few things against them. Look at verse 14, where we find the correction. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Notice what Jesus says here. Your issue has to do directly with teaching. You've adopted worldly doctrines into your church, and you're allowing these things to happen. Notice what he says, though, some of you. He didn't say the whole church is doing this, but the whole church is accountable for it. Some of them are going to church on a regular basis, but they've allowed these doctrines uh, to seep into their lives in such a way that they they leave church and they just live them out. The doctrine of of, uh, Balak here. The teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. You know, you can read about this in Numbers chapter 22 through 25. But the the quick gist of the story is that Balak was totally threatened by the children of Israel as they were moving through the land. And and so he he was afraid that they were going to overtake him. And so he said, what can I do? Let me call this prophet Balaam and ask him to curse these people. Um, and, 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 you know, and so he calls for Balaam to come. And of course, Balaam prays to God. Like, why would you even pray to God? Number one, like, Hey, should I go? That's like, ah, no, probably not, but they're going to pay me, Lord. And he keeps praying to God. He's like, okay, go and do exactly what I tell you to do, which is hilarious because he goes and, 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 and so Balak points out, there they are right there. So Balaam prays. And what does he do? Pronounces uh, Praise and, and he pronounces, you know, blessings over the children of Israel. And Balak's like, "What are you doing? Why are you doing this?" And so, Bala- Balaam is getting getting down. He does that a couple times. He gets to the point where he says, "Man, how am I going to get paid if I keep doing this? I can't not not say what God tells me to say. I just am saying these things. What am I going to do?" So he says, "Hey, let me tell you something. You know how to get these guys to." You know how to get the, you know how to conquer these guys you 'll never overtake their God, but their God will not stand for certain things so here 's what I want you to do send those Moabite women down into the camp of the Israelites, let them intermingle and let them because part of their act of worship was sex and then also with food that was sacrificed to idols. And the Lord is not cool with either one of those outside of marriage and idol worship at all, period. In case you were wondering, you're like, well, what, we could do that? No, you can't. But here's the thing. And so, so Numbers chapter 25, verses one through five says, while Israel lived in Shittim, the, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked herself to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord. That the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. Wow. Is God serious about about worship? Is he serious about idolatry and things like that? You bet. You bet he judges people even to death. He's never changed, folks. He's the same God. Same God in the Old Testament, same God in the New Testament. The difference is Jesus Christ has paid for your sins. He paved the way for you, but his expectations for you have not changed. It's not okay to worship idols, whether it's money or material things or whatever it might be. That's not okay. Again, I, I could even, you know, probably in this group, you know, probably the one that's maybe the most prevalent is children or maybe your spouse. God's not cool with any idol at all. It doesn't matter what it is, folks. He has to be the one in the center of your life. He's the one that deserves the throne of your heart and only him. And then everything else will flow from that. So make sure you, you have him in the right place in your life. But the children of Israel had adopted this practice in, in Pergamum. or The church in Pergamum had adopted this practice. They were flirting with the culture. So people were eating food sacrificed to idols and they were committing sexual immorality. And God wasn't cool with that. Um, he he goes on. Jesus also mentions the uh, the teaching of the Nicolaitans, and we talked about this a little bit with the Church of Ephesus. That the Church of Ephesus hated their deeds. Their deeds were sexual morality, and 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 um, I kind of all kinds of licentious living and such. And so, the 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 Church in Ephesus they they um, they hated those teachings, but those, some of those in Pergamum were embracing it. And so they were coming to church and then they were leaving and embracing this this sort of lifestyle. And I would say that that also is something that's seriously going on in the church today as well. I mean, you can read stats, folks. I mean, just pull up the stats on pornography in the church. It's staggering. It's staggering. And, you know, because you're a Christian, I would say this, you're gonna be even more tempted than you ever were in that area. Listen, we're sexual beings. We're created that way. The Lord created, there's nothing wrong with that. But in the wrong, taunt, the wrong context, it's totally wrong. And that context belongs in marriage, right? It's not before marriage. And yet, if we adopt the practices of the world, the world says it's cool to do whatever, with whoever, whenever you want to. And marriage is not even in the picture, that's not what my Bible says. You know, it's not okay to do those things. You know, the Lord is serious about sexual sin. He's serious about lust. And there's a lust problem in our culture today in the United States of America. That's why sex trafficking is so huge. That's why there's, there's, there's a major problem going on. Because, you know, just as the Lord allowed, you know, in Romans chapter 1, 24, he's allowing people to do what they want. And in this case, you know, we see homosexuality ramped up there. In in Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 27, it says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. That doesn't just apply to homosexuality. That's heterosexuality as well. He gave them up, and he's doing the same thing in our culture today. He's giving us up to whatever we want to do. Yeah, I'm preaching to the choir in here, but, you know, the reality of it is, is maybe some are stuck in this situation, and the Lord is the answer. Jesus is always the answer. He's the freedom. If the truth has set you free, you're free indeed. Jesus Christ is the freedom, right? He goes on here, he says, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those who are contrary to nature and the men likewise gave up natural relations with with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their their heir. What is he talking about? Homosexuality. That's not in the Bible. Yes, it is. It's right there. And, And here's the reality of it is, that God is saying that he gave them up to that. That's not acceptable. He gave man up to their sin, to their, to their lust. And this is the real result of it. And there's going to be a point when God cuts that off, though. There'll be a point in time where God says, enough is enough. I'm going to cut off this culture. When the culture starts to celebrate the sin with parades and such, we're, we're very close to that point where the Lord says, I'm going to cut off this this situation, and I don't I don't have any issues with um, with, with the with, with uh, well I shouldn't say that I love people, you know, you love people, but we don't we don't love sin, right? And and it's sad. And here's the reality: is we're all in we're all in some sin, sometime, somehow, we're doing something. But sin will keep you from God. If you're a Christian, sin keeps you from your fellowship with God. If you're not a Christian, sin keeps you from eternity with God. You know, don't, don't be fooled here. 1 Corinthians 6, verse, verses 9 through 10. This is not just a verse to use on homosexuality. Listen to this. Or do you not know that the unrighteous, here's the definition, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Here's the, here's a, here's the definition of unrighteous. Neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, Adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. That's pretty clear. There's really no wiggle room in that. Jesus doesn't say, as long as you are just kind of doing it, that's okay. Do you notice some of the other things in there? We want to focus on the sexual sins. There's other things in there also that will keep you from the kingdom of God if you're not a believer. How do you know you're a believer? If you keep his commandments. If you keep his commandments, you are my disciple, Jesus said. Not perfectly. You're not going to do it perfectly. You're going to fail. You know, and that's where the grace of God comes in, folks. He is not changed. He's the same God from the Old Testament as he is to the New Testament. The same God. The difference is the price has been paid for your sin. But he has the same expectation for us. Man, he loves us. And he's so patient with us. And he's, he's doing everything he can to draw us to himself. And listen, if you're convicted right now, know that that's a loving thing from the Lord because he's drawing you. I'm convicted right now. He loves us. He wants to draw us into that place of forgiveness and he wants to turn it around. Why, if you're a believer, he doesn't want you to, to be in broken fellowship with him. I'll talk about that in a second. Jesus is telling these guys that their teachings have led them astray. A couple couple teachings in the body of Christ. Some of them have adopted, but everybody's responsible for them. It's so important that you know who you're listening to, that you understand the doctrines that are being taught, and you'll never agree with anybody 100%, except for me, right? I mean, of course. I don't agree with myself sometimes, folks. I mean... So you're never going to agree like 100% on things. And that's okay because we, we, we study the word of God and we're students of the word of God. And we come up with our own, um, you know, interpretations of, of some things. They're not everything has like six different interpretations. Some things do. You know, it's okay to have a different interpretation on the rapture or, what, or those sorts of things because they're not salvation issues. But when it comes to salvation issues, Jesus Christ and him crucified, there is no wiggle room. It's one way. His name is Jesus. Right? But but here's the thing about teaching is we have to we have to be careful about what we're listening to. Just like our children need to be careful about what they're the kind of music they're listening to, the kind of things they're watching, we too in the church can get totally off track by listening to the wrong people. Here's, here's a question I would I would use to ask myself about about teachers that I follow. Does the teaching I'm following change me to become more like Jesus? Or does it make me feel comfortable in my sin? That's a good question to ask yourself. There are probably a hundred other ones. That's just one that you can ask yourself. Is this teaching leading me closer to Jesus? Is Jesus the center of what's happening in in this person's life? Do they tell me more stories about themselves than they tell me about Jesus? You know, who, who am I following when it comes to the teachings? I want to follow Jesus. So Jesus addresses the false teaching that's going on there. And he now goes on to a command here, telling them in verse 16, Therefore, repent. If not, I'll come to you soon and war against, listen, war against them. Very important, you you see the distinction. here: War against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a sobering word from the Lord here, where he's saying, repent or else again this is a church-wide call to repentance for those who were following false teachings for those who were allowing it also to exist in the church the body of Christ needs to be confrontational about sin not only in our own lives but also sin in and amongst the congregational sin. we have to be serious about it and you know I know that like sometimes that's a uh, one of those things like, oh man, who are you to say anything to me? Church discipline is part of the Bible. You know, when you have sin going on in the body of Christ, you're called to address it. Paul did it all the time. You know? And, and so we're called to address things that happen in the body. Why? Because sin spreads easy. So if we don't, if we don't deal with sin in the body of Christ, um, Paul said a little leaven, leaven's the whole lump. Before you know it, the whole body could be off. You know, if you if you leave California, you're going to Hawaii and you're one degree off when you take off, how far are you going to be off when you get to Hawaii? You'll never get to Hawaii. You'll miss it completely, right? It only takes a little bit. Just a little bit. And so we don't we don't walk around the church looking for sin. They're like, whoa, hey, where's Pastor Tim at? I need to see what he's doing. You know, no, we don't do that. But but here's the reality, and this is I've always said this, that if the Lord allows you, allows something to be revealed to you, it's because he wants you to do something with it. He's not just letting you in on the group, right? He's just like, here's a little heavenly gossip, you know, here you go. Here's something for you to think about, you know. No, he wants you to do something. You know, and, and, and there are times when, when the Lord will prompt your heart to say something to somebody and then you don't do it and guess what? Exactly what he says happens. Or exactly what he says comes to fruition. You're like, oh, man, I shouldn't have said that. I mean, I should have actually addressed that with the person. So be serious. Listen to the Spirit of God, man. You know, if the Spirit of God is nudging you to talk to somebody about something, you need to do it. Because it's not about you. It's about him. And he's trying to save somebody from something. God doesn't do it to embarrass us, folks. He does it because he loves us. And he wants to um, heal us. He wants us to deal with this stuff so that we can be in a right relationship with him. You know, the Bible says, be for sure your sin will find you out. It's not because God wants to expose you to say, like, oh, look, look what you're doing. Listen, if God were to flash every one of our minds on this screen, oh, my goodness, right? For, For real. But here's the reality of it because none of us are perfect, but sometimes God has to take a little extra step to get a hold of us, to say, say, hey, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And sometimes you're met with, I don't care what God says. And it's like, oh, okay, well, just thought I'd let you know. You know, you love on the person, then you treat them like an unbeliever. You take somebody with you, you know, and, and you, you want to address it, and if, if they're not listening to you, you take somebody else with you. If that doesn't work, you you take it before the church. If that doesn't work, you treat the person like an unbeliever. How do you treat a person like an unbeliever? Like an unbeliever. How do you treat an unbeliever? With love. You don't fellowship with an unbeliever though, do you? No, we we don't fellowship with unbelievers, but we love unbelievers and we have unbelievers in our life because we're supposed to share the gospel with people. If you and I are the only people that we have in our lives, we're also missing the point. We're supposed to, you know, be reaching out to people, to be ministering to people. But we don't have fellowship with people. Sin uh will break your fellowship with God if you're a believer. First John six, one through ten. First John one, six through ten. <laughs> It says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, uh, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. What, what the Lord is saying through John here is that we're all sinners. And if we're living in darkness, we can't have fellowship with God. But if we'll just turn our hearts to him, And we'll confess our sin. He'll wash us clean. And he'll restore that fellowship, man. He wants to be in intimate fellowship with you. But just like we're not supposed to be in fellowship with with darkness, the Lord's not going to be in fellowship with darkness. Even if you're a believer, you might feel like, man, I don't sense the Lord in my life right now. I don't sense, you know, him really doing anything. Time to examine your heart and ask yourself, what's going on here, Lord? Is there something that's keeping you? And I... From each other, is there something going on in my life that's offensive to you? Examine my heart, Lord, show me. That's the prayer of David. Lord, show me if there'd be any wicked way in me. Create in me a pure heart, oh God. You know, and and, and so you pray those kind of prayers. The Lord commands this church to repent, literally to turn 180 degrees and go the other direction. Again, repentance, you you know the definition. In case you don't, it's confession of your sin and then it's turning away from your sin and turning towards God. Kind of a two-stage thing, both happening at the same time. And the Lord will forgive you. And it sounds so easy. You know the the hard part about that is not the confession part for most people. It's the turning away. It's the turning away and sometimes we have to say, Lord, you know, I, I want to turn away, help me. Help me to turn away. Beg him. Lord, help me. You know? He wants his church to repent. And then if they do, there is a... It, actually, I want to just make a note here that he said if they don't, that he's going to war against them. Who's them? Those people who are practicing these, these, these doctrines of, of Balaam and and the Nicolaitans, those people who have refused to hear the word of the Lord, he's going to judge them. That will affect the whole church, folks. It will affect everybody in the church, but he will do it, and he's serious about that. He wants us to repent. He goes on here with the conditional promises for those that do. He says, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Two promises are made here to the one who conquers by way of repentance. First, Jesus says he'll give, a, give uh, such a one some hidden manna. You remember what manna is. Manna is literally bread from heaven. God gave it to the children of Israel as they were coming out of Egypt. It was to provide nourishment and satisfaction for them in the wilderness, And it was interesting that Jesus would later then call himself the bread from heaven, right? He's our manna. He's our satisfaction. He's he's our nourishment that we need in our wilderness here in this world. We look to Jesus. The hidden manna is symbolic of the blessings that come from the person who refuses to compromise, who finds their satisfaction and their nourishment in in the Lord alone. He goes on here secondly, and he says... Um, that the, the one who conquers in Christ will be given a white stone with a new name written on it. Now, there are a hundred different interpretations of what this might be. I'm just going to give you the one I think it is, because it's relevant to what's going on here, is that it's probably referring to the stone that was given to athletes after winning some athletic contest. The, in in Rome, it was customary for, if somebody were to win some some athletic game or something, then the emperor would give them a white stone with with their name written on it and they would use that stone then to get into some sort of a special banquet that was held after the games and they would bring that stone in and they would be honored as the, the victor there. Perhaps this is the ticket to a special banquet in heaven for those who have remained in the world but not of the world. What we know is that Christ will give such a one a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. What's the name that he's going to give you? You don't know. He just said nobody knows. You don't know. But we know at the time we'll know. And how awesome will that be? You got to be an overcomer though. You got to be a conqueror. You don't let the world into your life. Do not let what the culture is doing influence you. You influence the culture. Amen.